our Old Testament passage today are two verses from the 68th Psalm, verses 19 and 20. Psalm 68, 19 and 20, followed by our New Testament and sermon passage, Luke 8, 26 to 39. Psalm 68, verse 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. God is to us a God of deliverances, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Which would mean little to us if it weren't lived out in the lives of men. Which is what we find in Luke 8, beginning at verse 26. Speaking of Jesus and the disciples in the boat on the Lake of Galilee. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting down at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind and they became frightened those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon possessed had been made well and all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them for they were gripped with great fear and he got into a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him, but he sent him away, saying, Return to your house, and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, 
proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Amen. You've noticed, I'm sure, that in common English parlance, people sometimes refer to an especially difficult, aggravating, prolonged life situation as a living hell. By that phrase go any number of genuinely difficult life situations. So, for instance, you might hear a friend complain that my boss or my wife, or my husband, or my children, or my parents, or you fill in the blank. They make my life a living hell. Which is, of course, only a figure of speech. It's an overstatement. It's a hyperbole. And in common English parlance, we accept it as such. I'm not suggesting that we start correcting the theology of people who simply want to ventilate their frustrations. There's Certainly a time for doing that, just as there's a time for every purpose under heaven, but that's probably not the time. What you want to do at that moment is sympathize with him. He's going through a really rough time. Be a friend. Bear one another's burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. Correcting his deficient theology of hell can wait. But, even as we do this, Even as we lend a sympathetic ear to the deeply troubled, we also do well to take note of expressions like this that tend to water down, tend to cheapen the true biblical doctrine of hell. Because the fact is, this hard situation that you or your friend is going through right now, excruciating as it is, this situation's going to pass. In God's good providence, it will. We don't know when, we don't know how, we don't know how long it's apt to take, but we know this. It's going to pass. Hell, on the other hand, doesn't pass. Ever. It doesn't. There is no dim light shining, beckoning to us, comforting us, urging us just to hang on and wait a little longer. There is no light shining from the far side of hell, because there is no far side of hell. Again and again in the Gospels, Jesus calls it eternal punishment, eternal condemnation. He calls it the outer darkness. Hell just goes on and on and on and on forever. Because it's the measuring cup of his infinite justice. For depth, for darkness, for duration, for sheer devastation, the genuine article of hell, as the Bible describes it, doesn't. Pass. This being the case, the glorious power and particular mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ toward one lost man among the Gerasenes 
shine out from today's passage in the starkest, clearest, brightest light imaginable. Because here we meet a man truly rescued, in a sense, from the torments of hell. And that, friends, that doesn't happen every day. Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 35. Mark's Gospel tells us that the lake crossing and the storm that we considered last week, it took place very late in the day. It was actually evening time when Jesus and his disciples got into the boat there at Capernaum. Luke doesn't mention that little detail, but Mark does. So, we can surmise that by the time Jesus stills the late evening storm and they finally reach the eastern shore of the lake, it is by now well past nightfall. So as they're stepping out of the boat into the region of the Gerasenes, the sun has already gone down. They're under the stars, if there were stars out that night. They have just enough moonlight, perhaps, to render this whole scene that's now playing out before them just as weird, just as freakish, just as frightening as it can possibly be for those who witness it by the dark of the moon. This is a genuine living nightmare that's unfolding before their eyes. Consider some of the contrasts drawn in the passage before us. What we have here first is this incredibly vivid description of the agonies, body, soul, and spirit, the agonies of this poor, tattered, tormented man who's forced in a very real sense to carry hell with him. Forced to carry this toxic, seething chunk of hell rattling around within his soul wherever he goes. He carries a burden of spiritual disorder and filth that men once created in the image of God were never designed to carry. God created us for holiness. Holiness. And now this legion of filthy, despicable demons occupy his soul and has for a long time, it says. For a long time, they've been confusing his clouded mind, raging, ravaging his bleeding body, breaking whatever might be left of his spirit. He's a man absolutely broken in every dimension of his being. Here's the man whose life, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, has become actually, and without hyperbole, a living hell. It's not that he went to hell. No, hell came to him. Jesus and his disciples have scarcely enough time to step out of the boat, and suddenly, there in the moonlight, this strange, raging, naked, demon-filled man pops out of the shadows and lopes or staggers toward them, at them, full speed ahead, and he shrieks, and he falls to the ground, and he begs. What's it to you and to me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Which simply means, what do we have to talk about, you and I? 
Don't bother me. Don't torment me. And make no mistake, it is torment for such a restless evil to be in the very presence of Jesus. It must have been. It must have been because the sudden, unexpected arrival of such majesty, such perfect divine holiness stirs up this demonic legion lodged within the man. For a long time, Luke says, years maybe, this hornet's nest of restless evil has been buzzing unchallenged within his soul and now suddenly face to face with Jesus, the sheer holiness of him hits the hornet's nest like a pinata. If the man was a tangled mess before, the powerful presence of Jesus made the man an absolute train wreck. Again, let's take note of the clear contrasts that Luke draws. Because next to this man, whose personality is completely blown to smithereens by an indwelling army of unclean spirits, we have this portrait of the sheer, towering majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Son of the Most High God, He is indeed. He is, just as the demons were constrained to confess Him. We see Him sovereignly evicting those same unclean spirits. And where once smoldered the collapsed, wrecked, ruined, burned-out shack of this man's soul, Jesus now provides Him, without money and without cost, a new foundation on which to build a foundation of grace, mercy, and peace. Notice that his greatest need, blessed peace. You may have noticed as we read that that one all-important question the disciples up in verse 25 left hanging in the air unanswered most certainly is not left hanging by the demons or by this poor man whose life they're making a living hell. The daily distractions of life and its living may render our human minds a little bit foggy on certain important points like the true identity of Jesus. We may, for a season of our lives, be a little unclear about it, who he really is. Perhaps we think, well, maybe he was just a good man. Maybe he was just a great teacher, a great prophet, a great moral influence. We may need some time to read, to study, to learn the biblical truth about him. But the angels, whether they're fallen or unfallen, the angels have no such distractions. Their theology is crystal clear. And it has been from the beginning because the true identity of Jesus is an everyday reality to them. An everyday reality. The fallen angels, of course, don't willingly obey him, but they certainly believe. Because they know the truth about him, and believing they shudder, they tremble. It's just as the church sings in the 66th Psalm. Say unto God, how terrible in all thy works art thou. Through thy great power thy foes 
to thee shall be constrained to bow. The foes of our great covenant God and Savior, these hardened adversaries of our souls, they are not constrained to bow to you. They're not constrained to bow to me any more than they're constrained to bow to this poor garrison man. After all, who are we in the great scheme of things? We're just men and fallen men. The 8th Psalm puts the matter of our personal vulnerability very well when it asks of God the question, What is man so frail and weak that you should remember him? In the present instance, what's the natural man apart from Christ when he's up against a legion of raging demons? We're defenseless. That's what we are without Christ. Don't let Charles Darwin or this culture that his ideas spawned, don't let them pull the wool over your eyes. Improvement of the species by natural selection? Let me suggest to you that by nature alone, you and I are no better off than our first father Adam was, and in many respects we're far, far worse. We're worse off. After all, he managed by grace to live for 930 years after he fell into sin. Are you going to live as long? Am I? Whether we're considering human abilities, physical or spiritual, let's not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Let's not imagine ourselves somehow to be at the very apex of some evolutionary process this 21st century, to be humanity's finest hour and ourselves to be spiritually invincible because we're not. We're not. The truth is that apart from the saving, persevering work of Jesus Christ within us, we're no better than our fathers. Apart from Jesus Christ, the human soul is a city without walls. It lies open to any and every unsavory influence that happens to come along. Apart from Christ, we're bound to walk. We are actually constrained to walk the ever-deepening ruts of sin that a hundred generations of our fathers have been wearing into the human condition for 6,000 years. We flatter ourselves if we imagine ourselves to be rugged individualists, boldly carving out our own destinies. We're flattering ourselves because in the presence of demons, fallen men are puppets. In the presence of demons, men undefended by Christ, our covenant king, cannot stand But those rebel spirits, just as truly as rebel men, will in time be constrained to bow to Jesus, that name above every other name. One of the Bible's precious proverbs puts the matter succinctly and memorably and helpfully. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. So Luke paints this vivid contrast, first of all, between the disintegrating garrison demoniac on the one hand and the calm, 
majestically unruffled Lord Jesus Christ, a tower of strength, ministering grace to him. On the other. But there's another striking contrast that Luke draws as he tells this tale. It's a set of before and after photographs of this man who's been forced for so long to carry that intolerable, seething burden of hell within his heart. Photos of before and after Jesus sovereignly released him from the grip of the demonic legion. Look once again at this man who first lurched over to Jesus in verse 27. Is there any aspect or dimension of his life or his liberty or his happiness that he hadn't long since lost? Look at him. When do you suppose was the last time this man ate a good hot meal? When do you suppose he last slept a good night's sleep in his own bed? When do you suppose was the last time he enjoyed a good book or a good hearty laugh with friends or the kiss of a sweetheart? A long time. A long time. His whole hellish existence for a long time can be summed up in that one lonely little word, loss. First, he lost his place in society. I wonder if you noticed this little detail about him in verse 27. He'd started out life in the city. Jesus was met with a man from the city. So it wasn't from birth, or it wasn't by personal choice that he's living out in the boonies. He's, he was once a city dweller. He'd been a man used to being around others in a social way, within the protections of a social framework, for the exchange of all kinds of social supports. He once had friends and neighbors. He once had a barber, grocery clerks, all the people you meet with every day when you're out and about. He relied on them. They relied on him. And then somehow, that first unclean spirit got a foot in the door of his heart. And pretty soon he became a man absolutely out of control. In fact, the city fathers took some pretty severe measures, didn't they, to get him back into control. Chains, for instance, and leg irons, and guards posted to keep an eye on him, and yet every time he was arrested for his disorderly conduct, he'd break the bonds, he'd escape his jailers, and be driven by the demon back into the desert. Just to keep terrorizing anyone who happened to be using that stretch of desert road, a stretch of road that Matthew tells us people soon stopped using altogether because of him. He'd lost his place in society. He'd also lost the routine, customary comforts of life. (coughs) Even the more austere comforts of a life spent in the desert. He'd lost them. 
because by now that first demon apparently sent out invitations to all his homeless, wandering demon friends, all of whom are more than happy to join in their diabolical work of wasting this man, ruining him, making him suffer, making him hate life, making him love death, and yet never quite able to achieve it, try as he might. Mark's account gives us this little glimpse into the man's living nightmare. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. So in this way, night and day, naked and homeless, he spent his years bereft of the barest human comforts of life and living he lost everything. His liberty is gone, just as you quickly discover yours to be gone when others take the wheel of your life. <coughs> Certainly his personal comportment's gone. His demeanor, that is. His self-possession. His self-control. <clears throat> and at the root of all his other losses, he'd completely and utterly lost his individual identity. <clears throat> his identity. To have a firm grasp of who you are as an individual, your own name, your own family, your own background, your own history, your own home address, and all those things that go into making you, you. One particular individual, discrete from all the rest of humanity, all these bits of individual personal information about us help anchor us to reality. Our individual self-awareness, our sense of having a personal identity, keeps most of us from doing many of the things that sometimes cross our minds to do. I know who I am, and I don't rob banks. I know who I am, and I don't beat my wife and kids. I know who I am, and I don't assault travelers along the road by day or wander through the graveyards by night. I know who I am. But the demons, of course, have long since robbed this man of his individual voice, his individual identity. And that ability to discriminate himself from others is the first thing that Jesus aims to restore. Verse 30. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Well, time fails me. The details of the story as it plays out that night are plain to read. Pigs enter into the story, but the story is really not about pigs. The story is about Jesus. The story is about the sheer grace, the almighty power by which one very dark night Jesus took that before picture of verses 27 to 30 and by the next morning had turned it into the after picture of verse 35. When they went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. 
Beloved, is there any situation too hard for Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, to mend? Does your particular situation in life present Jesus with personal details that are too dark to mention, too humiliating, too personally degrading? Or is it maybe just a situation that is too long in the tooth for you to believe it could ever change? Let Jesus' saving encounter with the Gerasene demoniac stir up within you a new and living hope. A genuine, well-founded hope. Because this man's experience represents the perfect storm of trouble, doesn't it? The perfect storm of absolute hopelessness, absolute despair. The man, for a long time, was experiencing up close and personal his own living hell. It chewed him up and spat him out and left him absolutely nothing. It left him naked and bleeding and a menace to society. Then finally, faced with his one and only opportunity for release by the might and power of Jesus, he begged not to be bothered. Begged just to be left alone. Here's an absolutely hopeless case, if ever there was one. Let us outcome in the life of this homeless, hopeless man. Work a new hope in you. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what was true of him in days of old is true still today. God is to us a God of deliverances. And to God the Lord belong escapes from death.